Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you now to open up your Bibles and turn to James chapter 3. Uh, we're continuing in our series here in James. It's titled Undivided. Um, and we're looking at how James is inviting us to a life that isn't divided between the things that we think and the things that we do, that there's a, a unity, that there's a harmony in how we are called to live as Christians. And one of the things that I've mentioned about James is that it can be understood as wisdom literature. Um, and wisdom literature is not unique to James in the Bible. There are other books that we can turn to, Ecclesiastes, um, and Proverbs, and particularly Proverbs, is, is a good one for comparison for James, because Proverbs is full of all these really sharp sayings that are meant to be remembered and meant to call people into action that is in accordance to following God's good law. So today, I'm going to be drawing in a little bit of Proverbs, just so we can get a sense of how James and, and Proverbs kind of fit together. James also has kind of those sharp sayings that are meant to drive us into action. Uh, before turning to God's word, uh, let's come together again in prayer. Our Lord and our God, uh, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. And shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Those who are never at fault in what they say are perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses or make, to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes, a great, uh, makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil amongst parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And it sets itself on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by human beings, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. When the tongue, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? 
my brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The word of the Lord. Now, if you want to read uh, a book with a bunch of really silly-sounding names, um, I suggest you check out Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, This is a book written by John Bunyan in the 1600s, and it's full of different characters like Mr. Worldly Wiseman, or Giant Despair, or Lord Hate Good. Um, And with a name like that, you kind of just picture what Lord Hate Good is like. It doesn't take much um, extra insight to figure that one out. Each character acts exactly like what their name is. The main character in this story is someone named Christian, who is a Christian. um, And he partners with uh, someone named Faithful as they work their way along this journey. They work their way from the city of destruction, his hometown, um, to the celestial city. Now, one of the characters that they come across is someone called Mr. Talkative. Mr. Talkative has a great deal of good things to say. And Christian's companion, Faithful, thinks, wow, this is a a great person to travel with. Maybe we should kind of continue our journey with this person. But the problem is, Christian already knows Talkative. Uh, Mr. Talkative is, they're they're from the same hometown, that, that city of destruction. And he knows his reputation is that he doesn't always act in accordance with what he has to say. Well, while Mr. Talkative knows a lot of things about spirituality, he he knows the right talking points, but religion actually hasn't worked its way into his heart and into his soul. Bunyan makes a, a note that this person is notorious amongst his family and amongst the servants in the town for being rather harsh. A summary I found about Mr. Talkative sounds like this. It says, thus, say the common people that know him, a saint abroad and a devil at home. His poor family finds it is so. He is such a churl, such a railer at, an unreasonable person with his servants that they neither know how to do for or to speak to him. Um, In the story, Faithful and Christian end up kind of getting rid of him or parting ways when they talk about this need to actually be transformed by the gospel, which when they get down to it, it's clear that Talkative wants to go down a different path, and Faith and Christian go their own way. And looking at that book, we can kind of We can look at this character, Mr. Talkative, and think, where did John Bunyan get the idea for this? Uh, Perhaps he knew some people in his church that were like Mr. Talkative, or perhaps he saw a little bit of Mr. Talkative in himself. Maybe not as exaggerated as the character, uh, but he saw pieces of that where the things that he spoke did not always work in harmony with how he acted and behaved in the world. We in the church are people that ought to be quite mindful of this. Are are we like Mr. Talkative? Do we have all the right answers yet don't actually have our, our hearts 
formed by this, our actions changed by this deeper relationship with God. Of course, um, John Bunyan had a lot more uh, places he could go to in getting this idea from Mr. Talkative. Um, a lot of it comes from Scripture, uh, particularly our passage here in James chapter 3, but also um, kind of scattered throughout Proverbs, there are a lot of sayings about the danger in speech. In, in our opening here in James, we have this note. Not many of us should presume to be teachers. Not, not many of us should teach. And when he looks into why, the ultimate reason points back to the fact that we all stumble in many ways, that, that these many words that teachers give, give plenty of opportunities for error. Now, that same thing is mirrored in Proverbs. Here's just an example from Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 4. And I'll just read the things on the negative end on speech. That harsh words stir up anger. The mouth of the fool gushes folly. The perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Now, if you go through Proverbs, you'll just find saying after saying that deal with being careful around how we speak. In, in, in Proverbs chapter 16, so just the next chapter, there's this line, the scoundrels plot evil and on their lips is like scorching fire. Uh, this, this idea of, of the, the words kind of being like a scorching fire is mirrored in James itself, where, where James talks about how the, the tongue has this kind of root where it sets things on fire. He says, um, he gives the image of a forest fire beginning with just a spark, inviting us to consider that the burning, destructive nature that words can have, even though they come from such a small source, just this, this little spark, it can cause this huge forest fire I think just going outside today, I got a bit of a smell of the destruction, how, how broad and how big that expanse um, that a small start, spark can lead to. Now, I also have something here in my hands to, to remind me of how something small can cause a lot of damage. Uh, this is, I don't know if you can see it from where you are, half-inch copper piping, at least that's what I'm told. Um, all I know about this piece really is that it was in my house uh, about two weeks ago, and now it does not live there anymore. Um, it began kind of a couple weeks ago where I was moving some stuff around, and I had to go into my storage room, which has carpet on it, and when I stepped on the carpet, it was wet. And that's not good because it, it had never been wet before. This was a new thing, and I had to figure out where this was coming from. Um, we had to clear out things around our place. We had to kind of cut out the carpet. We found some laminate flooring that apparently was there. We had to remove that. Now, when we got to this piece, though, we, we couldn't actually find where the leak was coming from. And, and even looking at this, it, it, it looks like it's solid, that it's, that it's intact. Uh, but there's a tiny little pinhole kind of prick in here 
that when you put water through it, it will shoot this stream of water so thin and graceful and lovely that you might mistake it for a spider web, uh, as I did the first time that I saw it. Um, it's amazing how something so small, it's invisible to the eye, caused so much damage or caused so much action. Um, it's the thing that prompted us to, to tear out some of the drywall and to remove the carpeting. These little tiny things can end up causing a lot of damage and bringing about a lot of action. And that's exactly the type of image that Paul wants us to think about here. This is how we ought to be thinking about words. Words are seemingly insignificant things, but they can balloon forward. They, be, they can cause a lot of damage and bring in a lot of action around us. A couple of months ago, um, when working through the Ten Commandments, we had um, a message that talked a bit about words where we actually referred to this James passage a few times. The, the theme of that message was that word, uh, words create worlds. Words can bubble forth from our mouth, and some are kind of this vapid, toxic, clashing, uh, they cause damage around them. Well, while other words, as they come out, can create these nourishing landscapes. Here, James wants us to think of the deeper power of words despite their small origins. The tongue is not very big when compared to the rest of the body, yet you'd think with its size that it shouldn't be able to determine one's fate. Yet don't be deceived. The words we speak can be damaging. Think, think of a spark, how it can turn to a forest fire. Now, if you've been reading James on your own and, and working your way through it, uh, uh, kind of, I had suggested a few times to work your way through this book, uh, you might not be surprised to actually find James using language around words quite strongly because this is a theme that shows up earlier on. And just to, to revisit some of that, I want to go back to James chapter 1 and see what his, his setup is for this. So in James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Quick to listen and slow to speak. This is what everyone ought to have. This is the natural posture that Christians ought to have. We are to be an example of what it means to listen well. When, when we're hearing other people, we're not just kind of thinking of a, an argument against them or the next kind of interesting thing to say, but that we are listening truly to what is before us. We are slow to speak. Uh, we, we take care in the types of words that we respond, whether we agree or we disagree with the person. The priority in listening, not just to other people, but as we see in James, there's also this priority towards listening to God. The passage continues in saying that we are to be listeners of the word. And this comment reminds me of, uh, there's a book called uh, The Way of the Heart by Henry Nouwen. I've used it on uh, a few uh, spiritual retreats in the past. 
and it has a powerful section on silence. He says that in a world that is dominated by noise, practicing silence, stilling ourselves enough to truly listen can be a powerfully countercultural activity. Nowen argues that silence ought to be a central discipline in our spiritual lives, and he points to James, as specifically James chapter 3, in reasoning to why that is so. He points out how words can bring us to do and say what is wrong. And when we are drawn into silence, we're not invited just to passive listening, but we are invited into a type of listening that brings transformation and change. True, deep listening is allowed to cut to our hearts. James gives the example of a mirror in this passage. He is mentioning how the, the scripture essentially allows us to get a mirror to ourselves, to our own hearts. So when we read passages like this that have strong words about how we use our words, uh, we're not kind of using them as binoculars to, to accuse other people with these, uh, but there's meant to look at our own selves first. How do we use these words? The encouragement isn't to simply listen to the word and tell others to do what it says, but that we embody it. Now, for the past two sermons, um, we've been looking at uh, James chapter 1, verse 27 as this theme statement, this thesis statement that he unpacks. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting to note that in James's setup for chapter 1, verse 27, he has a line that has a lot to do with how we speak. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. These are strong words. So strong that I think sometimes we don't really know what to do with them. Maybe we take them as hyperbole or we want to water them down a little bit. But I think it's good just to take a moment to just see the strength of James's words here. He's essentially saying, if you consider yourself to be religious, but don't keep a tight ring on your tongue, there's a self-deception that's taking place, that your religion is of no worth. Or to put it in the language of chapter 2 that we looked at, that the religion ends up being hollow, or empty or inconsistent, that, that this actually shows division, uh, signs of a divided life, where we are meant to be undivided and whole. James is actually making the point that our words can be a point of division, not just between communities, but within ourselves. So do we take words that seriously? Uh, looking at scripture, we can find these long lists of the types of harm that words can do, whether it's in gossiping, belittling, cursing, bragging, manipulating, false teaching, exaggerating, complaining, flattering, lying. We can compile these lists on the ways that words can cause harm. We can see that words have immense power, but I find it interesting to see what James's focus is on, because James isn't focusing on the fact that words can cause harm to others. 
but he is looking at the effect that is on ourselves. He's saying that when we are hateful with our tongue, that we will likely be hateful with other aspects of our behavior. If we do not discipline and purify our speech, you will not be able to discipline and purify the rest of your life. It's mirror language. It's language that invites us to see within our own selves. Remember the, the pipe here. Um, this is something that is very little, um, but can cause a lot of destruction, not just to others, but to ourselves. Uh, this should have us thinking that what we say is of, um, we, we should be taking a lot of care in what we say. Returning to James chapter 3, verse 2, he says, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And I just want to pick up on the language here of perfection, um, because that's something that we've actually come across in James before as well. The goal throughout James is this movement towards perfection. And perfection isn't just this idea of um, moral purity, but it is movement towards wholeness, towards undivided living. Uh, we looked at this early on in James chapter 1, verse 4. It says, let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. And looking at how James uses the word perfection to point towards completeness, we also looked at James chapter 2, verse 22, where he gives this example of Abraham, whose faith was working together with his works and was perfected by his works. Uh, James isn't saying that Abraham somehow worked his way to perfection in terms of moral purity. He's not saying the idea that Abraham was never making any mistakes. Instead, he was having other connotations with perfection. Moving towards perfection is movement towards this undivided life where our actions and thought are in harmony. Perfection has to do with experiencing the wholeness that we were meant for, where we're not split between thinking one thing and acting in a way that's contrary. The person who speaks well is the mature Christian. If we follow James's argument, we find the ultimate problem with the wrong use of our words is that it actually shows us to be divided people. Look, look where James finishes this section. If, if we're not following the track of wholeness, then it could be a little confusing why he's ending the way that he does. But he makes this argument, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives? These are visual questions that have us thinking to James's earlier words. Those who consider themselves to be religious but do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So we've, we've started here in looking at James chapter 3 with, with an abundance of caution. And I think that is 
just trying to mirror what James is saying here. Uh, James 3, 1 to 12, has a lot of caution towards the way that we use our words, but it is not completely hopeless. Turning again to the first verse here, it says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. He doesn't say that nobody should ever teach. Uh, There is a hopefulness here in words that can be spoken well. After all, we look at the bit in the horse's mouth or the rudder of the ship, they actually do a pretty good job in steering the ship well most of the time. Perhaps a key point of hope comes in noting James's language that no one can tame the human or can tame the tongue and that this no one there is, is talking about no other human, no person can tame the human tongue. But, as Augustine, so a pastor from 1600 years ago, points out that while humanity cannot tame the tongue, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have God speaking to us and working within us to bring renewal in how we use our words. With our words, we can speak of the gospel goodness. We can use words to remind us of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the forgiveness that we receive in the midst of our failings. We can turn to him in repentance. More than this, our words can actually be a source of nourishment when they're spoken with care towards the other person. Listen also to Proverbs and the positive things that it has to say around words. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Uh, to, To sit just with one of these images here, The mouth of the righteous is like the fountain of life. Um, While there's lots of different dangers around words, here we have uh, words that, that point us to think back to what life was like in ancient Israel, where you'd have months on end without any water. And you can see that there's no life that can exist without this running water. The the land around it is gray and lifeness, and yet you would find upsprings of water in this context where the greenery is and where the life can be found. This image that the Proverbs is giving us is one of abundance, the mouth of a person who spends time before God, affected in his heart and soul, can be nourishing to those around him. One example I just want to leave us with here um, involves being careful in how we speak to and about each other. And I'm going to go back uh, to the story of Josephine Butler. This is uh, someone that lived in the the 1800s, um, and she started, uh, she was instrumental in starting a global movement towards women's rights. one of the groups of women that she had spent a lot of time lobbying for uh, were described in in the broader culture um, with words like fallen, 
or they were described primarily as prostitutes or women of the night. However, in her own writing and her lobbying for the dignity in their treatment, she didn't use that language. Instead, she uses the gospel category of the outcast. So rather than siding with society in labeling them by what they do, she has a gospel imagination and uses a term that points out how society has treated them. They have been cast out. They have been forgotten. These simple terms in how we address people aren't periphery for someone like Josephine Butler. This is central to the point that she is making because she has become friends with these women. And being in relationship with them has brought her a lens into seeing how in their society, these women have nowhere to go. In Victorian England, they were considered sexually compromised, and, and alongside that, they, they didn't have any mobility in culture anymore. They had this ongoing problem of destitution. So Butler realized or refused to see these people primarily under the category of fallen, but chose the language of outcast to ask, who is the caster out? In, in doing so, there's a cultural reimagining of the person who has been left out. She refuses to see the people simply as objects of lust or objects of the fears of a society that no longer knows what to do with them, and instead uses a word that describes how they are being treated. Um, in, in her journaling, we get a picture of how she gets to this place. And it is primarily through silence. Um, she notes that if you want to change the world, then you need to learn to be alone. You need to learn to be before God. This is not something that we drew, do to withdraw from the world, but we return, uh, we, we go into God's presence speaking to God and listening to God so that we can return with something life-giving to bring into the world. At the core of her action was a resistance in thinking that she was the one who had to instigate change. Rather than exhausting herself with trying to do it, she allowed the change to happen in constantly coming before God. Um, one of the, the lines that has really stuck with me um, through her biography is, when we live without prayer, we declare our ability to live without God. Say that line again. When we live without prayer, we declare our ability to live without God. Or on the flip side, when we pray, we acknowledge our need for God. So my encouragement for us here to close is that we ought to be good listeners, good listeners to one another and also listeners to God, helping to reframe the world around us in a way that shows the redeeming power of God through his work in us, in the things that we do and the words that we say. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us words and language uh, we see many ways that it causes hurt and destruction. And we confess 
that we have hurt others, we have lied, we have been careless with words spoken. We all know how words can be like a spark that soon gets out of control. Beyond the, the effect that words have on others, we also see how words show division within us. How we proclaim to be followers of you in one moment, yet live in other ways in the next. Forgive us for the ways in which we fail to live into the maturity that you call us, and may we grow in consistency, living in ways that reflect what we believe through your work in us. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.